The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. After the Anglo-Saxon conquest of England in the 5th century, four major kingdoms would emerge, Northumbria, Wessex, Mercia, and East Anglia. By the 8th century, Offa the King of Mercia was expanding his territory, aiming to make Mercia the dominant kingdom in England. He won an important victory over Sinwulf, the King of Wessex at the time, at the Battle of Bensington. The battle, led by King Offa, ended with victory for the Mercians, which resulted in the West Saxons recognising Mercian overlordship. In the year 762, King Offa exploited an unstable situation in Kent. Kent had a long tradition of joint kingship, with East and West Kent under separate kings, though one king was typically dominant. Prior to the year 762, Kent was ruled by Ethelbert II and Aidbert I. Aidbert's son, Erd Wolf, is also recognised as a king. Ethelbert died in the year 762, and by the year 764, King Offa of Mercia had granted land at Rochester in his own name, with Heobert on the witness list as the King of Kent. King Offa was playing the political game to grow his influence. Heobert would soon become the King of Kent, and Offa would be perceived as his overlord, as Offa's influence had helped place him on the throne. However, in the year 784, a new King of Kent, Aylmund, appears in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Aylmund was the father of Egbert, who would later become the King of Wessex. Aylmund does not appear to have survived long in power, as there is no record of his activities after the year 784. There is, however, extensive evidence of Offa's domination of Kent during the late 780s, with his goals apparently going beyond overlordship to the outright annexation of the kingdom. He has been described as the rival, not the overlord of the Kentish kings. It is also possible that the young Egbert fled to Wessex in the year 785 or so, fearing for his life during this time, as he would have been a young man in his teens. In the year 786, Sinwulf, the king of Wessex, was murdered. He was a victim of a surprise attack at his mistress's house. After Sinwulf's death, his vacant throne was contended by Egbert. However, Beotric also made a claim for the crown of Wessex, and thanks to him being married to Offa's daughter, he had the backing of the King of Mercia, with Mercia being the most powerful kingdom in the land. Beotric was soon crowned the King of Wessex, and Egbert was driven into exile. Land that had traditionally been on the borders of Mercia and Wessex were administered by the Mercian court. The West Saxons were even using Offa's currency, portraying his overlordship in South England. King Offa also became the overlord of East Anglia, 
and had King Ethelbert II beheaded in the year 794. The execution of an Anglo-Saxon king on the orders of another ruler were very rare, portraying King Offa's attitude towards dominion and subjugation of the other kingdoms through fear. King Offa would die in the year 796. He was succeeded by his son, Ecfrith of Mercia, but according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, he died after only 141 days on the throne. Since King Offa had murdered most of his relatives in order to eliminate dynastic rivals, his line ended. In the words of the historian Simon Keynes, Offa was driven by a lust for power, not a vision of English unity, and what was left was reputation, not a legacy. It is now believed that Offa thought himself as the king of the Mercians, and that his military success were part of the transformation of Mercia from an overlordship of Midland peoples into a powerful, aggressive kingdom. However, Offa would always be remembered as a warrior king who ruled Mercia when it was the dominant kingdom in England. After King Offa's death in the year 796, Mercian power over England was weakened, and Beotric, the King of Wessex, may have exercised more independence during this period. However, he didn't last long on the throne, as he had died from being accidentally poisoned by his wife, Eadbert. Beotric was succeeded by Egbert, who was recalled from exile. Whilst Egbert was in exile, he went to the court of Charlemagne, the King of the Franks, who would later be crowned as the Emperor of the Romans. Egbert's reign was supported by Charlemagne, which helped him establish himself as the King of Wessex, and by the year 802, he was crowned. The Mercians continued to oppose Egbert. On the day of his ascension, the Hwais, who were a tribal kingdom, but were very much still part of Mercia, attacked under the leadership of their elderman, Ethelmund. This would culminate in the Battle of Kepsford, which occurred on the 16th of January, when Ethelmund led a group of warriors from Mercia in a raid against the people of Wessex. However, Weoxtan, a Wessex elderman, met him with the men of Wiltshire, driving the forces of Mercia back across the river. Both leaders, however, were slain. Nothing more is recorded of Egbert's relation with Mercia for over 20 years after this battle. It seems likely that Egbert had no influence outside his own borders, but on the other hand, there is no evidence that he ever submitted to the overlordship of Senwulf, who became the King of Mercia shortly after the death of King Offa and his son Ecfrith. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, in the year 815, King Egbert laid waste to West Wales, from eastward to westward. Thus, he became the overlord of the Cornish. King Egbert isn't mentioned in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle again until the year 825, when he finally clashes with Mercia. In between the years 815 and 825, the crown of Mercia was being passed around with the kings being crowned swiftly and then dying. Sionwulf, the successor of the warrior king Offa and his son Ecfrith, would die in the year 821. His brother Seolwulf would then take the Mercian crown. The Anglo-Saxon chronicle states that Seolwulf was deprived of his kingdom. 
This could indicate that his successor, Beornwulf, was a usurper that had taken the Mercian throne in a coup or uprising. Nevertheless, in the year 823, Beornwulf would seize the Mercian crown. Mercia was still a powerful kingdom, as the warrior king Offa had left it upon his death. However, his descendants wouldn't share the glory of the kingdom he'd forged. During the 8th century and the early 9th century, the King of Mercia had exercised a supremacy over the kingdoms of southeastern England, imposing their overlordship at times, and even exercising direct rule. However, after the death of Offa in the year 796, Mercia's dominion over the land wasn't the same. After Beronwulf had seized the Mercian crown, he would take advantage of Egbert's preoccupation with warfare against the Britons of Cornwall, and would plan an attack on the Kingdom of Wessex. This would culminate in the Battle of Ellendon. Egbert was in Cornwall with his army, when he received word that the Mercians had invaded Wessex. Egbert led his army back into Wessex, and met Beronwulf and his army. Although greatly outnumbered, Egbert would fight with his son Ethelwulf, and according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it was a bloodbath, and it describes the scene. Egbert got the victory, and there a great slaughter was made. The fighting was so fierce, that the medieval chronicler Henry of Huntingdon, writing 300 years after the event, noted, Egbert engaged in battle against Beornwulf, the King of Mercia at Ellendon, whence it is said, Ellendon's stream was reddened with blood, was stopped up with the fallen, was filled with stench. After enormous slaughter had been perpetrated on both peoples there, Egbert was the mournful victor. Beornwulf, however, escaped the carnage and fled. The battle was costly to both sides in loss of life. The victory over Mercia shifted the balance of power to Egbert. He was now the most accomplished king in southern England. Immediately, Egbert sent his son Ethelwulf with an army to overthrow Baldred, the Mercian sub-king of Kent. As a result, all of Kent, Surrey, Sussex and East Anglia submitted to Egbert. Wessex would double in size overnight, and Egbert was quickly growing his political influence, wealth, and power over England. The consequences of Ellendon went beyond the immediate loss of Mercian power in the southeast. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the East Anglians asked for Egbert's protection against the Mercians, as in the year 826, Beonwulf, the King of Mercia, invaded East Anglia to recover his overlordship. However, with his power and influence much depleted after the Battle of Ellendon, there was a rebellion in East Anglia, and Beonwulf himself was slain. After the death of the King of Mercia, Ludeca was crowned as king. Ludeca had the same idea as his predecessor Beonwulf, and he too tried to subjugate East Anglia. According to Florence of Worcester, writing 300 years after the event, this is what transpired. Ludeca, king of the Mercians, mustered his forces and led an army into the province of the East Angles, for the purpose of taking vengeance for the death of King Beronwulf, his predecessor. 
he was quickly met by the natives and their king, who in a severe battle slew him and five of his eldermen, and very many of his troops. Wigalf then succeeded to his splendid kingdom. King Egbert of Wessex knew that the situation in Mercia was unstable. With his own power now having overtaken Mercia's due to the kingdom's instability, in the year 829, Egbert would invade Mercia and drove Wigalf its king into exile. Egbert's defeat of Wigalf in the year 829 completed his dominion of southern England, and Egbert went on to receive the submission of King Ernard of Northumbria. According to a later chronicler of the 13th century, Roger of Wendover, Egbert invaded Northumbria and plundered it before Ernard submitted. When Egbert had obtained all of the southern kingdoms, he led a large army into Northumbria and laid waste to the province with severe pillaging and made King Ernard pay tribute. These events led the anonymous scribe who wrote in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle to describe Egbert as the eighth Bretwalder, an old English word for rulers who have achieved overlordship of some or all other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. It can also be translated to mean the ruler of Britain. King Egbert would remain in control of Mercia until the year 830, he was in power there long enough to issue coins bearing his name. Egbert had finally attained the power that King Offa of Mercia had when he exiled him all those years ago, but while the Saxons were busy fighting each other, dragon-headed longships were gliding across the sea from the icy north, with pagan warriors lusting for battle and plunder. In the year 830, Egbert led a successful expedition against the Welsh, almost certainly with the intent of extending West Saxon influence into the Welsh lands. This marked the high point of Egbert's influence over England. Mercia would soon regain its independence under Wigalf. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle merely says that Wigalf obtained the Kingdom of Mercia again, but the most likely explanation is that this was a result of a Mercian rebellion against Wessex rule. Thus, Egbert's overlordship over most of England would collapse. Despite the loss of dominance, Egbert's military success fundamentally changed the political landscape of Anglo-Saxon England. Wessex retained control of the southern eastern kingdoms, with the possible exception of Essex and Mercia, and did not regain control of East Anglia with King Ethelstan minting his own coins. This is not surprising, as it was King Ethelstan who was probably responsible for the defeat of both Beronwulf and Ludeca, who were the kings of Mercia at the time. Nevertheless, Egbert's fragile overlordship over England was over. The damage had already been done. However, Mercia was never again able to regain the status it once had the independence of East Anglia and Egbert's control of the southeast were here to stay. In the latter years of Egbert's reign, a more ominous threat loomed from across the water. Arriving in longboats and with a formidable reputation, the arrival of the Vikings was about to turn England and its kingdoms upside down. With Vikings launching raids on the Isle of Sheppey and Kent in the year 835, their presence looked increasingly dangerous to Egbert's territory. 
the following year, he would be forced to engage in the Battle of Carhampton, involving the crews of 35 ships, resulting in great bloodshed. At this battle, Egbert would taste defeat against the formidable Vikings, but he would fight them again at the Battle of Hingston Down in Cornwall. From the years 815 and onwards, Egbert had raided Cornwall from east to west, and the Cornish people had remembered their subjugation and would ally themselves with the Vikings. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, this is what transpired. In this year, a great naval force arrived among the West Welsh, and the latter, combined with them, proceeded to fight against Egbert, King of the West Saxons, and put both the Welsh and the Danes to flight. Egbert died in the year 839. In the year before his death, he would assure the succession of his son Ethelwulf. King Egbert was generally seen as an effective and good king. He stabilised the Kingdom of Wessex, and his familial line ruled until the middle of the 10th century. Indeed, it's said that without the reign of Egbert of Wessex, the beginning of the unification of England under his grandson Alfred the Great may never have been possible. The Viking Age was the period during the Middle Ages when Norsemen known as Vikings undertook large-scale raiding, colonising, conquest and trading throughout Europe, and reached as far as North America. The Scandinavians of the Viking Age are often referred to as Vikings, as well as Norsemen, voyaging by sea from their homelands in Denmark, Norway and Sweden. The Norse people settled in the British Isles, Ireland, the Faroe Islands, Iceland, Greenland, Normandy, among other places. Over the centuries, the Vikings would make themselves kings in foreign lands, and would even found several kingdoms. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle describes the arrival of the Viking invaders. In the year 793, it states, This year came dreadful forewarnings over the land of the Northumbrians, terrifying the people most woefully. These were immense sheets of light rushing through the air, and whirlwinds, and fiery dragons flying across the firement. These tremendous tokens were soon followed by a great famine. The harrowing inroads of heathen men made lamentable havoc in the Church of God, in the holy island of Lindisfarne, by rapine and slaughter. The Viking raids, however, would spread all over England, and become a serious threat. Prior to the Viking Age, the kings of England had historically fought each other, trying to establish their dominance over one another. But these marauding heathens who appeared on the English shores would completely change the history and attitude of the English kings, who at this point ruled a very much divided England. Probably born at the imperial Frankish court, Ethelwulf was the eldest son of King Egbert of Wessex, and his wife, Redburga. Ethelwulf's father Egbert had been exiled from England by Offa, the King of Mercia, who had subjugated most of England and had it under his dominion. At the beginning of the 9th century, England was almost completely under control of the Anglo-Saxons, with Mercia and Wessex being the most important southern kingdoms. Mercia was dominant until the 820s, and it exercised overlordship over East Anglia and Kent, 
so Mercia was the dominant figure of the second half of the 8th century. However, after the death of King Offa, Egbert would make his way back to England at the head of an army, and he would proclaim himself as the King of Wessex. Ethelwulf most likely enjoyed a childhood surrounded by wealth, as his father went into the court of Charlemagne during his exile. After Egbert was crowned the King of Wessex in the year 802, he would go on to subdue much of the land by the sword, and the commander of his armies was his son Ethelwulf, which in Old English means Noble Wolf. The first 20 years of Egbert's reign on the throne are not recorded, but due to his son Ethelwulf's later actions in life, we can only assume he grew up as a noble, and would spend a considerable amount of time training with the sword, and in education. Ethelwulf is first mentioned in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in the year 823, and by this time, he was already a man. It states, This year there was a battle between the Welsh and the men of Devon at Calmford, and the same year, Egbert, the king of the West Saxons, and Bernwulf, the king of the Mercians, fought at Wilton, and Egbert got the victory, and there was a great slaughter made. He then sent from the army his son Ethelwulf, and Elstan his bishop, and Wulfrid his elderman, into Kent with a large force, and they drove Baldred the king northwards over the Thames, and the men of Kent, and the men of Surrey, and the South Saxons, and the East Saxons, submitted to him. So according to the chronicle, when Egbert won the crucial battle of Ellenden in Wiltshire against King Beornwulf of Mercia, we can assume by his side in the thick of the fighting was his son Ethelwulf. Egbert followed up the battle by sending Ethelwulf with a large army into Kent to expel its king Baldred. Ethelwulf was descended from the kings of Kent, and he became the sub-king of Kent, and of Surrey, and Sussex, and Essex, which were then included in the sub-kingdom, which was now a vassal of Wessex. So whilst Egbert was the king of Wessex after the Battle of Ellendon, Ethelwulf was now also a king, but the king of Kent. The first entry of Ethelwulf in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle portrays him as a warrior prince who would subjugate an entire kingdom in its first passage relating to him. This gives us a hint on his character, and that he was indeed a man of action. In the year 829, Egbert conquered Mercia, and Wessex was finally the dominant kingdom in the land, after many years of Mercian subjugation. However, Wigalf, its king, would recover his kingdom just a year later. Nevertheless, Wessex would remain the dominant power in England. King Egbert, perhaps sensing his time on earth was coming to an end, would call a council at Kingston in order to try to put his succession in order. There was a long history in England of the Anglo-Saxon kings dying and the surrounding nobles vying for the throne. However, Ethelwulf was already a king of Kent and was a considerable warrior. Egbert and Ethelwulf granted lands to powerful lords and the Archbishop of Canterbury for their support when the time came. Egbert died in the year 839, and due to his extensive wealth acquired through conquest, Ethelwulf's transition to the throne was smooth, as he had the support of the Southeastern Church establishment. In addition, 
Ethelwolf was already a king. Ruling the Kingdom of Kent had given him much knowledge and experience, allowing the transition of power to be that much easier. Ethelwolf had six known children. His eldest son, Ethelstan, was old enough to be appointed as the next King of Kent in the year 839, when Ethelwolf became the King of Wessex. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle calls Ethelstan King of the Dwellers in Kent, of the East Saxons, of the South Saxons, and of Surrey. So, Ethelwolf's eldest became the King of Kent, just as Egbert had made Ethelwolf the King of Kent. The second eldest was Ethelbald, then came Ethelbert, then Ethelred, and finally Alfred, who would later become known to history as Alfred the Great. Ethelwolf also had a daughter named Ethelswith. The threat of the Vikings were becoming more apparent as their raids across the English coast increased. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the Vikings would engage Ethelwolf in battle in the year 840. It states, This year King Ethelwolf fought at Charmouth against the crews of 35 ships and the Danish men maintained possession of the field. These unnamed raiders had just defeated a mighty warrior king. The Vikings came back in the year 851. Ethelwolf's son, King Ethelstan of Kent, and the elderman Elhir of Kent, would defeat a Viking fleet and army near Sandwich. This was apparently the first naval battle recorded in English history. The result of the battle also portrayed that King Ethelstan was a warrior, just like his father before him. However, King Ethelstan disappears from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle after the year 851, so we can only assume he died not long after. The same year, more Vikings would land in Surrey, which once again would result in battle. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, this is what transpired. Three and a half hundred ships came into the mouth of the Thames and stormed Canterbury and London, and put to flight Beorthwulf, the King of Mercia, with his army, and then went south over the Thames into Surrey, and King Ethelwulf and his son Ethelbald with the West Saxon army fought against them at Aclea, and there they made the greatest slaughter of a heathen raiding army that we have heard of up to this present day, and there they took the victory. Ethelwulf's second-born son, Ethelbald, had also proven himself to be a warrior and would fight alongside his father in battle. Ethelwulf and his warrior prince sons managed to keep the Viking threat of England under control during his reign. In the year 855, Ethelwulf was now well into his later life, first being recorded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in the year 823, leading men into battle. We can only assume by the year 850, he was at least in his 50s, having been king for over 30 years at this point, and he was also the King of Kent in his youth, so he would decide to take a pilgrimage to Rome. Even though the Viking threat was increasing, Ethelwulf was at the height of his power and prestige, and Ethelwulf always wanted to see this splendid city and how it had a place of honour among the kings and emperors of Christendom. Ethelwulf left Ethelbald, his eldest surviving son, to take care of Wessex in his absence. 
he left the rule of the Kingdom of Kent to Ethelbert, who was an adult at this point. This would confirm that this was his plan of succession upon his death. Ethelwulf's other sons, Ethelred and Alfred were still children during this time. So in the year 855, Ethelwulf set out to Rome and would bring the child Alfred with him. On the way, the party stayed with Charles the Bald in Francia. Ethelwulf would stay over a year in Rome and donated many gifts to the church, portraying that he was no Germanic petty king. Ethelwulf returned to Wessex to face a revolt by his son Ethelbald, who attempted to prevent his father from recovering his throne. On Ethelwulf's return home from Rome, he stayed for several months in the court of King Charles the Bald, the King of the West Franks, and he would marry Charles's daughter Judith, and she would be proclaimed queen. However, during Ethelwulf's absence from his kingdom, a plot had hatched to prevent his return to the throne. His power-hungry sons did not want to relinquish their newly founded power, and Ethelbald probably thought his rule would be permanent. Although this internal dispute is not mentioned in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Brother Asser goes into detail on this matter. According to Asser, when Ethelwulf returned to England, he agreed to divide the kingdom to avoid civil war. Most historians state that Ethelbald kept Wessex, while Ethelbert agreed to surrender the southeastern kingdoms of Kent, Essex, Surrey and Sussex to Ethelwulf. Ethelwulf would rule a divided kingdom until his death in the year 858, where his son Ethelbald succeeded him and became the king of all Wessex. Ethelwulf not only helped his own father Egbert expand Wessex, but kept the kingdom secure from Viking raids and didn't let the ancient power of Mercia grow to overtake Wessex. He also secured his bloodline by having five sons, even if at the end of his life they did rebel against him. This portrays that the kings of Wessex of the line of Egbert were restless Saxon kings. However, the Viking threat was not over yet, and by the end of the century, the land of England would have completely transformed due to the Viking conquest. In the annals of English history, the name Alfred the Great resonates with echoes of valour, wisdom, and resilience. Alfred ascended to the throne of Wessex in the year 871, inheriting a kingdom on the brink of collapse. His reign, marked by unwavering determination and strategic brilliance, earned him the epithet, the Great. Alfred's enduring legacy as the saviour of Wessex lies in his remarkable ability to transform adversity into triumph. Ultimately, preserving the spirit and identity of his kingdom. As the King of Wessex, from the years 871 to 899, Alfred's legacy transcends his time, leaving an indelible mark on the cultural, political and intellectual foundations of England. Alfred, born into royalty, would have the enormous task of defending Wessex from the Viking invaders who had already taken the ancient kingdoms of East Anglia and Northumbria. The neighbouring kings were dropping like flies, and it fell to Alfred to defend the last Saxon kingdom. This 
is his story. Alfred was born in the village of Wanting, in Berkshire in the year 849. He was the youngest of five sons, sired by King Ethelwulf of Wessex and his first wife, Osbur. As the youngest sibling, he was not groomed for kingship. His older brothers were expected to inherit the throne, leaving Alfred free to pursue his intellectual pursuits and personal interests. The lack of immediate royal responsibilities allowed him the freedom to delve into education and learning, fostering a deep love for knowledge and culture that would later define his reign. Ethelwulf, Alfred's father, was a notable warrior and had defeated the armies of Vikings on several occasions. Alfred's oldest brother was Ethelstan, who ruled as the King of Kent and was known as a fierce fighter. However, he would die before his father in the year 851. Ethelbald was the second born, and then came Ethelbert, and then Ethelred, and finally, there was Alfred. In the year 853, at the age of four, Alfred is reported by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle to have accompanied his father King Ethelwulf to Rome, where he was confirmed by Pope Leo IV. This was a big deal at the time, as barely anyone from Alfred's lands had travelled to Europe, and meeting the Pope would have been the pilgrimage of a lifetime. However, during Alfred's return home from Rome, in the year 856, Ethelwulf was deposed by his son Ethelbald and Alfred's eldest brother. Ethelbald, the eldest son of King Ethelwulf, was a prince driven by ambition. In a bold and audacious move, he usurped the throne from his father, sparking a period of political turmoil within Wessex. His actions, driven by a hunger for power and impatience to rule, plunged the kingdom into uncertainty. The consequences of this usurpation were far-reaching, affecting not only the political landscape, but also the lives of those close to the throne, including a young and impressionable Alfred. With civil war looming, the magnates of the realm met in council to arrange a compromise. Ethelbald would retain the western shires, and Ethelwulf would rule in the east. When King Ethelwulf died in the year 858, Wessex was claimed by Ethelbald, who has a rather negative reputation according to later chroniclers and historians. William of Malmesbury, the foremost English historian of the 12th century, wrote, Ethelbald, who was worthless and disloyal to his father, defiled his father's marriage bed, for after his father's death, he sank so low as to marry his stepmother Judith. However, Judith may have done this to avoid the usual fate of widows being sent to a convent. To Ethelbald, this marriage was advantageous because of Judith's belonging to the Carolingian dynasty, which would allow him to enhance his status, placing him above his brothers. Ethelwulf's youngest son, Alfred, was a witness to the chaos that ensued after Ethelbald's power grab. These formative years were marked by instability, fear and uncertainty. Living in the shadow of a usurping brother, Alfred was exposed to the harsh realities of court politics from a young age. 
the familial discord and the struggle for power would have had a profound impact on his worldview, instilling in him a deep sense of caution, resilience and determination. Nevertheless, little is known about Ethelbald's reign and he only lasted on the throne for two years and he fathered no children, leaving the throne to his younger brother Ethelbert in the year 860. When Alfred's older brother Ethelbert ascended to the throne, Alfred would have been around 12 years old, and the new king would appear to be on good terms with his two younger brothers, Ethelred and Alfred. The reign of Ethelbert unfolded against a backdrop of relentless Viking invasions that posed a grave threat to the stability of Wessex. These raids tested the mettle of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, demanding strategic acumen and military prowess. Additionally, internal dynastic struggles within Wessex added another layer of complexity to Ethelbert's rule. As he navigated these challenges, the young Alfred observed firsthand the pressures and responsibilities of kingship. Ethelbert's reign began and ended with raids by Vikings. In the year 860, a Viking army sailed from the Somme to England and sacked Winchester, but they were defeated by the men of Hampshire and Berkshire. Probably in the autumn of the year 864, another Viking army camped on Thanet and were promised money in return for peace, but they broke their promise and ravaged eastern Kent. These attacks were minor, compared with events after Ethelbert's death, which would result in the whole of England being overran by the great heathen army. Ethelbert died of unknown causes in the autumn of the year 865. He was buried at Sherborne Abbey in Dorset, beside his brother Ethelbald, and was succeeded by his younger brother Ethelred. Three of Alfred's older brothers had now died childless, and the reigns of his older brothers had moulded him into a man. Alfred would have been around 16 years old when his older brother Ethelred took the crown, and although his brother would prove to be a capable ruler, the threat the whole of England faced was something that had not been seen since the time of the Romans. Previously, the country had suffered from sporadic raids, but now it faced invasion aiming at conquest and settlement. A large force of Vikings, called by contemporaries the Great Heathen Army, arrived in East Anglia. The Ragnarsons had arrived in the country and were seeking revenge in Northumbria for the death of their father, Ragnar Lothbrok. The Ragnarsons consisted of Ubba, Ivar the Boneless, Sigurd Snake in the Eye, Bjorn Ironside, and Halfdan, all capable and legendary warriors commanding their own armies. King Edmund purchased a peace by paying tribute to the Vikings and they would stay a year in East Anglia, building up their strength. The Vikings then made their way to York and conquered Northumbria, installing a puppet king. Sigurd and Bjorn Ragnarsson would go back to their own kingdoms after the fall of Northumbria. Meanwhile, Ivar, Ubba and Halfdan 
would remain burning and pillaging. Ivar the Boneless had just put an end to the line of kings in Northumbria, and he and his great pagan army were on the move south, with the intention to take Mercia as their own. In the year 867, they took Nottingham in Mercia, and spent the winter there. King Buchred of Mercia appealed to King Ethelred of Wessex for help. Ethelred and Alfred led a large West Saxon army to Nottingham, and besieged the Vikings. But the Vikings refused to leave the safety of the town's defences. The combined Mercian and Wessex armies were unable to breach the earth's ramparts and ditch. Eventually, Bugred bought the Vikings off. The Vikings then went back to York. In the year 869, the Norsemen returned to East Anglia and conquered the kingdom, killing King Edmund. Two out of the four great kingdoms of England had now fallen. However, Ivar the Boneless would go north with his contingent of the great heathen army, leaving command to his brothers, Halfdan and Ubba, and the Danish warlord named Guthrum. During Ethelred's reign, Alfred participated in the war effort against the Vikings. This hands-on experience provided him with valuable military skills and tactical knowledge. He learnt the art of warfare, strategic planning, and the importance of adaptability in the face of a relentless enemy. The battles between the Great Heathen Army and the Wessex rulers were marked by extraordinary ferocity, strategic brilliance, and a determination that would shape the fate of a nation. King Ethelred, confronted with this unprecedented threat, displayed remarkable defiance. He marshalled his forces, fortified towns, and engaged the great heathen army in a series of fierce battles. The intensity of these confrontations mirrored the high stakes. The very survival of Wessex and its culture hung in the balance. Ethelred's determination and bravery in face of overwhelming odds inspired his people and showcased the resilience of the Anglo-Saxon spirit. At the end of the year 870, the Vikings attempted to conquer Wessex and made their way from East Anglia to Reading. On the 4th of January, King Ethelred of Wessex and Prince Alfred would meet the Vikings with a Saxon army and fought their way into the town, slaughtering all the Danes outside. This would culminate in the Battle of Reading on the 4th of January in the year 871. When Ethelred's army would reach the town gate, the Vikings under the command of Halfdan Ragnarsson would burst out of the gates, creating a counter-attack, completely slaughtering the Saxons. The level of carnage was immense, and King Ethelred and Prince Alfred barely escaped the battlefield with their lives, only escaping due to their better knowledge of the local terrain, which allowed them to lose their Viking pursuers by crossing the river Ludden. Their surviving forces regrouped at Windsor, and four days later, Ethelred and Alfred would lead their forces again in the Battle of Ashdown. The Vikings would arrive first and deployed themselves at the top of the ridge, 
giving them the advantage. They then divided their forces into two contingents, one under Ivar's brother King Halfdan, and another under the Viking Earls. Alfred sent scouts, who reported this back to him, and Ethelred and himself decided to copy the Viking formation, with Ethelred facing King Halfdan's force, and Alfred's forces would face the other. Before the battle, King Ethelred would retire to his tent for mass, whilst Alfred rallied his men and led his forces to the battlefield. Both the Vikings and the Saxons formed a shield wall and approached one another. Alfred, knowing the enemy had the advantage, decided to attack and led his men in a charge up the hill. The two armies would collide and the battle would rage on until Ethelred then also led a charge. This would result in a Saxon victory. Ethelred and Alfred would then pursue the Vikings in a blood rage, cutting down all fleeing their wrath, until night fell upon them. Alfred was quickly gaining a repute as a savage warrior and a mighty leader of men. However, the victory was short-lived. Two weeks later, Ethelred and Alfred were defeated at the royal estate of Basing in the Battle of Basing. Despite facing devastating defeats and the loss of significant territories, Wessex did not yield. The resistance of Ethelred, Alfred and their people was unmatched. However, it was at the Battle of Merton on the 22nd of March in the year 871 where the Vikings turned the tide of the war. Bishop Haymond was killed, as were many important men, and after this battle, a great summer army came to Reading. Afterwards at Easter, King Ethered died. It has been widely speculated by historians that Ethelred died from the wounds he acquired over the many back-to-back -back battles he was involved in against the Vikings. The deaths of Alfred's four older brothers, Ethelstan, Ethelbald, Ethelbert and Ethelred, left him as the sole surviving heir to the throne of Wessex. The hopes and expectations of the Wessex dynasty rested solely upon Alfred's shoulders. As the last remaining heir, he was expected not only to continue the lineage, but also defend the kingdom against Viking incursions and internal strife. This immense pressure, coupled with the awareness and challenges faced by his predecessors, compelled Alfred to mature swiftly, developing a keen understanding of the complexities of leadership. The loss of his brothers became a crucible in which Alfred's character was forged. Witnessing the fragility of life, and the impermanence of power. He internalized the importance of resilience, determination, and adaptability. These experiences fostered in him a sense of duty towards his people, a commitment to defending his kingdom, and an unwavering resolve to leave a lasting legacy. His brother Ethelred, however, left behind two underage sons after his death, Ethelhelm and Ethelwold. Ethelred and Alfred had made an agreement earlier that the surviving brother of the battles would be king. 
Alfred's ascension to the throne went uncontested, as they needed a man and a leader to lead them through many dark and uncertain days. While Alfred was busy with the burial ceremonies for his brother, the Danes defeated the Saxon army in his absence at an unnamed spot, and then again in his presence at Wilton in May. The defeat at Wilton left Alfred hopeless. How could he remove these Vikings from his lands? He was forced instead to make a peace with them, according to sources that do not tell what the terms of the peace were. Although not mentioned by Asa or by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Alfred probably paid the Vikings silver to leave. For the next five years, the Danes occupied other parts of England, and in the year 874, the Vikings overran Mercia and drove its king Buchred into exile, where he went to Rome and would never return to the British Isles. The Vikings then installed the puppet king Seolwulf, demanding oaths of loyalty from the new king. Following this victory, the great heathen army again split. Halfdan went north to fight against the Picts of Strathclyde, while Guthrum and Ubba continued fighting in Wessex. In the year 876, under their new leader Guthrum, the Danes slipped past the Saxon army and attacked and occupied Wareham in Dorset. Alfred blockaded them, but was unable to take Wareham by assault. He then negotiated a peace, which involved an exchange of hostages and oaths, which the Danes swore on a holy ring associated with the worship of Thor. However, the Danes broke their word, and after killing all the hostages, slipped away under the cover of night. However, many Viking ships had been scattered by a storm, and the Danes were forced to submit and withdraw to Mercia. Guthrum, however, would come up with a cunning plan. In January of the year 878, the Danes made a sudden attack on Chippenham, a royal stronghold in which Alfred had been staying over Christmas. Alfred's personal guard were killed, and he barely escaped with his life. In the face of this devastating loss, Alfred made a strategic decision that would prove pivotal. He retreated to the marshes of Somerset, a region of natural fortifications and strategic advantage. From this secure base, he meticulously reorganised his forces, implementing military reforms and instilling a sense of discipline and unity among his loyal troops. This period of retreat became a transformative experience for Alfred, offering him the opportunity to reflect, strategize, and emerge as a more resilient and strategic leader. However, Guthrum's successful siege and capture of Chippenham in the heart of Wessex sent shockwaves throughout the kingdom. The loss of a major stronghold struck at the very core of Alfred's realm, leaving his people in a state of fear and uncertainty. Wessex was pushed to the brink. With the Viking threat looming large, many began to question the ability of their young king to protect and defend their homeland. A legend originating from 12th century chroniclers 
tell how when Alfred first fled to the Somerset levels, Alfred was given shelter by a peasant woman who, unaware of his identity, left him to watch some Wheaton cakes she had left cooking on the fire. Preoccupied with the problems of his kingdom, Alfred accidentally let the cakes burn and was scolded by the woman upon her return. Alfred now the king of nothing had not been told off like that since he was a child, and it brought him some joy. The year 878 was the low mark in the history of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, with all the other kingdoms having fallen to the Vikings. Wessex alone was resisting, but with Alfred in exile in the marshes and no resources, the future of Wessex and England was unclear. Nevertheless, News had reached Alfred on the death of two Ragnarsons. Ubba had been slain at the Battle of Kernwit by the Elderman of Devon, Odder, which was a huge blow to the Vikings. In addition, Halfdan had been slain in Dublin in the year 877 by his nephew Bardur Iverson. It seems Halfdan was campaigning to regain his brother Ivar's lost crown in Dublin, but ended up being killed in the Battle of Strangford Lau by his own kin. The death of these two legendary commanders would give Alfred some hope. It was in this moment of solitude and reflection that Alfred resolved to take a bold step to emerge from his hiding and rally his men for a decisive stand against the Viking invaders. Egbert's stone held historical significance, as it was named after King Egbert, Alfred's grandfather, who had united many Anglo-Saxon kingdoms under his rule. Choosing this site to summon his men carried a powerful symbolism. It invoked the spirit of unity and the legacy of Wessex's past glory. By gathering at Egbert's stone, Alfred intended to remind his men of their shared heritage, their ancestral unity, and the importance of defending their homeland against foreign invaders. In May, Alfred rode to Egbert's Stone, where he was met by all the people of Somerset, Wiltshire, and Hampshire, and they rejoiced to see their king. When Alfred emerged from his hiding, and called upon his men to gather at Egbert's stone. His words resonated with a sense of urgency, determination, and hope. He spoke of the resilience of the Anglo-Saxon people, their shared history, and the need to reclaim their homeland from the Vikings. Alfred's unwavering resolve and eloquence inspired his men, instilling in them a newfound determination to fight for their kingdom and their way of life. Alfred had retained the loyalty of the Elderman, Royal Reeves, and King Stens, who had maintained their positions of authority in their lands by not submitting to the Vikings, and would answer Alfred's summons to war. This upcoming battle would decide the fate of Wessex and England, as if the Saxons lost then the whole of England would be in the hands of the Viking invaders. According to Brother Asser, who wrote a biography of Alfred, this is what transpired. 
fighting ferociously, forming a dense shield wall against the whole army of the pagans, and striving long and bravely. At last, Alfred gained the victory. He overthrew the pagans with a great slaughter, and smiting the fugitives, he pursued them as far as the fortress. Alfred pursued the Danes to their stronghold at Chippenham, and starved them into submission. One of the terms of the surrender was that Guthrum convert to Christianity. Three weeks later, the Danish chief Guthrum and 29 of his men were baptised at Alfred's court, with Alfred receiving Guthrum as his spiritual son. The Battle of Eddington ended in a resounding victory for Alfred and the Anglo-Saxons. Guthrum and his Viking forces were decisively defeated, resulting in the signing of the Treaty of Wedmore. The treaty established clear boundaries between the Anglo-Saxon and Viking territories, bringing a temporary halt to the Viking invasions and securing Wessex from immediate threats. Alfred's victory at Eddington allowed him to consolidate his power, fortify his kingdom, and lay the foundation for the eventual unification of England under Wessex's rule. Thus began the quiet years of Alfred's reign. Alfred built up the defences of his kingdom to ensure that it was not threatened by the Danes again. He reorganised his army and built a series of well-defended settlements across southern England. He also established a navy for use against the Danish raiders, who continued to harass the coast. As an administrator, Alfred advocated justice and order, and established a code of laws. He had a strong belief in the importance of education, and learnt Latin in his late thirties. He then arranged, and himself took part in, the translation of books from Latin to Anglo-Saxon. In the year 886, Alfred reoccupied the city of London. Alfred entrusted the city to the care of his son-in-law Ethelred, the Elderman of Mercia, who had married his daughter Ethelfled, who would later go on to be known as the Lady of Mercia. During this period, almost all chroniclers agree that the Saxon people of pre-unified England submitted to Alfred. This was not, however, the point at which Alfred came to become known as the King of England. In fact, he would never adopt the title for himself, even though he was the king of all the land, in all but name. Alfred's unwavering determination, and his ability to inspire his people, earned him the title King of the Anglo-Saxons. His diplomatic prowess and military successes gradually led to the unification of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms under the banner of Wessex. Through alliances, strategic marriages, and his reputation as a just and wise ruler, Alfred created a sense of shared identity among the Anglo-Saxon realms. Alfred the Great's legacy as the King of the Anglo-Saxons is a testament to his visionary leadership, political astuteness, 
and unwavering dedication to his people, his reign not only repelled external threats, but also sowed the seeds of unity and cultural identity, shaping the course of English history. Alfred's achievements as a statesman, military leader, and patron of learning have left an indelible mark on the identity of the English nation, making him not just a king, but a revered architect of united England. Alfred died on the 26th of October in the year 899, at the age of 51. How he died is unknown, although he suffered throughout his life with a painful and unpleasant illness. King Alfred was a great man, portrayed here in a quote by Bishop Asser. He was superior to all of his brothers, both in wisdom and in all good habits, and furthermore, because he was warlike beyond measure and victorious in almost all battles. Although Alfred was troubled by health problems throughout his life, statues of Alfred in Winchester and Wantage portray him as a great warrior. However, evidence suggests that he was not your traditional tall hulking warrior and had bouts where he would fall ill, but this wouldn't hold him back and he never lacked in courage and fought alongside his men, which if anything, makes him that much greater. The Viking raids during the 9th century, spearheaded by legendary figures like the Ragnarsons, posed a threat to the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, including Alfred's Wessex. These invaders, driven by conquest and plunder, left a trail of destruction in their wake challenging the survival for the English way of life. In the face of such dire circumstances, Alfred emerged as the unyielding guardian of his people, determined to repel the Viking invaders and preserve the future of England. Alfred was also extremely lucky, as Halfdan and Ubber would die unexpectedly. Nevertheless, Alfred's resolve was the same, and he would live or die fighting. Alfred the Great's legacy as the saviour of England from the Vikings is a testament to his heroic resolve and the enduring impact on the nation's history. His ability to navigate the most challenging of circumstances, defeat legendary foes, and unite his people in the face of adversity cemented his reputation as one of England's greatest monarchs. Alfred's legacy continues to inspire generations, serving as a reminder of the power of courage, determination and leadership in safeguarding a nation's future. Upon Alfred's death, his son Edward the Elder would take the crown. However, the power struggle that ensued after the death of Alfred the Great was a tumultuous period in English history. It revealed the challenges of succession, the complexities of internal politics, and the persistent threats posed by external adversaries. However, it also demonstrated the resilience of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and the eventual emergence of a unified England. The struggles and triumphs of this period laid the foundation for the strong, centralised monarchy 
that would characterise medieval England, leaving a lasting legacy of political stability and national unity. I hope you all enjoyed the video. If you did, be sure to like, subscribe and share, and I'll see you all soon for another History Profile.